Hey, before I get started on the message, I just wanted to uh, mention something. We talked about this in Sunday school. Um, but uh, in the last week or two, you may have gotten some messages from Lion and Lamb um, about some legislation. It was uh, called the Adoption Protection Act, and it was designed to uh, protect uh, the conscience or the liberty of faith-based adoption agencies wouldn't change anything, just protect them from attack in the future. Uh, had a, had, has had a difficult time in the legislature, uh, and so uh, a call went out for uh, communication and prayer. Uh, and uh, I, I, if, if you're, you haven't been here for a while, you know we don't do that very often. I don't think we could be characterized as an activist church or anything like that. But it may be different than what you've experienced in other churches. I don't know. Uh, may may be, make you uncomfortable. Uh, here's the deal: is that at Lion and Lamb, we believe that the Word of God applies to everything; that nothing is out of bounds. And if something is good and righteous, we should recognize it. If something is evil or wrong, we should call that out as well. And so, from time to time, uh, we don't believe that politics are out of bounds that the Word of God has something to say about those things and that we should communicate and inform one another. And I just want to say I thank you, those of you who either made a phone call or sent an email, and especially those of you who prayed because the, the act or the bill passed, and uh, we're grateful for that very much. Yeah, truly a thing of God by the bare minimum number of votes it got through. Uh, hey, listen. Uh, Last time, uh, we started on the passage that's on your handout, uh, which talks about a couple of guys who build houses, okay? And uh, this is a familiar passage that I'm sure you guys have grown up with. Uh, and today, we want to focus on the foundations upon which they build. Uh, but to lead up to that, we need to review just a little bit and get a few more details about these two guys. We're going to start with a guy building on sand. Uh, a term that might be applied to this guy is a nominal Christian. The word nominal means in name only. And to be clear, this is a term that you often hear, particularly in public discussion. Uh, how many of you heard the term rhino? Okay, it means Republican in name only. Okay, that's what it stands for. It's an acronym. Uh, and it's a common phrase here in Kansas because for whatever reason, maybe Eric can tell us why, it might be because of Ike, it might be because Kansas was a free state in the slavery debate, but Kansas has, in the legislature, has generally been dominated by the Republican Party. Uh, and... Uh, but that has its downside because when the, the other people who don't necessarily agree with the platform or whatever the Republican Party stands for, they see that and they see, you know, it's a lot easier to get elected as a Republican because some people will just simply vote for the person who has the R next to their name, uh, really not inquiring. And so, therefore, you get uh, one side, what we call the Republican wing of the Republican Party, calling the other folks in the Republican parties rhinos. Okay, well, as an example, 
the act that I just referred to in the House of Representatives on Friday, 17 Republicans joined all the Democrats to vote against that bill. Okay? That's just kind of what happens. In other words, the Republicans don't ask them to sign a statement of faith or an oath when they register with the party because the Republicans want all the people they can get under their big tent. But you see the problem it creates. Uh, and that's a little bit like what we're talking about when we talk about a nominal Christian. Uh, but the, the analogy breaks down in that Christianity or Christ's treatment of his followers is different. He draws a bright line, unlike the Republican Party. So when we talk about a nominal Christian, it's important to understand what we mean. Because Christians, by definition, are the saved. And some get confused about the word nominal Christians. Some people think that's a weak or a less than fully committed Christian, but one who is saved. But that's not how I'm using that term today. Please understand. I'm using it as the one who calls himself a Christian and believes he's a Christian, but yet is not saved. And that's exactly the target of Jesus' words in the passage you have before you on your handout. There's another facet of this that we need to be careful about, and that's that you and I don't make that call on the Day of Judgment. That's not for us to make. Uh, and that should give us pause any time we might feel tempted to judge somebody's salvation. However, as human beings, we have to judge all the time. Uh, and what we hope to do today is give some guidance on how we might detect a nominal Christian, not so that we can declare them unsaved and cast them out, but the opposite, so that we can help them understand the cause of their lost state. As an example, if someone you knew and loved was suffering from a destructive lifestyle, alcoholism, drug addiction, or whatever, is it more loving to let them do their thing or to warn them back into a healthy and productive lifestyle. That is exactly what Jesus is doing here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He's warning that many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but thinking they're saved, but they're not. The only one that you and I have any control over is us just ourselves, which is why we should first apply the test that we're going to talk about today to ourselves. But it's the essence of the gospel to care about the lost, to rescue the perishing. And that's why Jesus focuses so much on this issue. So today we first want to partly review, but then go into more detail about these two guys, starting with the nominal Christian, the one who thinks he is but is really not a Christian. He's a Christian in name only. And as we studied a month ago, uh, this is what Jesus refers to as the foolish man. And we learned that that person doesn't really care about plans and advice and limitations. He just wants to quickly get a roof over his head rather than a sturdy structure that will stand the tests 
of nature or, in the spiritual sense, the test of life. In, the, in terms of spiritual walk, he does not want to be bothered with certain doctrines. He wants a digestible Christianity that goes down smoothly. Knowing a person's general attitude about biblical principles can be very, very important. In terms of particulars, just like the foolish man, his first goal is to please the one who's at the center of his universe himself. He seeks all the comforts and the benefits of the Christian life. And you know what they are, because we all enjoy them, the fellowship, the, uh, the joy that we, got, that we have in, in getting together, affirmation from others. In other words, he's looking for what he can get. But just as the fool does not seek the expertise of architects and experienced builders, uh, the nominal Christian is not interested in deep Bible study. He might ask questions about the meanings of words or grammar or other mechanics like that just to give the impression that he's interested. Uh, in Acts 20, Paul says goodbye to the elders at Ephesus for the last time. Uh, and he reminds them that, quote, he did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And by that he meant not just the easy stuff, the comfortable stuff, but the difficult parts of the Christian walk. The nominal Christian does not want to hear the whole counsel of God, particularly the hard sayings and the consequences of unbelief. If he studies the Bible, he will gravitate toward passages on the love of God. He will read and recite a passage like a familiar one, this one before you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should have eternal life. Did you notice something? That's not John 3.16. You see, he left out a part. It's that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the nominal Christian certainly does not want to look at the last verse in chapter 3, which says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. These are uncomfortable words. The ones that he avoids. He selects what he wants to study, and he talks about those things that are convenient and comfortable for him. And just like all the rest of it, he likes the passages about love and forgiveness and because they give him a sense of joy and peace and comfort within. But unlike the true believer, he avoids passages that talk about the justice of God. Now, this is not a new thing. It's hard to see, but uh, historians tell us that uh, about 100 years ago, there was a movement within the church called pacifism, which not only opposed war, but avoided a lot of scripture, Paul's epistles and, and the gospels to a large extent, focusing instead on things in the Sermon on the Mount like loving your enemy and turning the other cheek. And just like the fool who builds hastily upon the sand just to get a roof over his head, the nominal Christian is interested in getting, in, is not interested in getting the whole counsel of God, just the parts that meet his immediate emotional need. So he picks and chooses. Now to avoid hypocrisy, we need to look inward and examine ourselves in light of what the Bible says before looking elsewhere. And we should ask ourselves some questions. Do I take the whole counsel of God or just what I like? Uh, 
in studying the word, do I equally accept his wrath as well as his mercy, his righteousness as well as his long-suffering, his holiness as well as his compassion, his justice as well as his love? The nominal Christian ignores the uncomfortable side. In other words, he never faces the nature and effect of his or anybody else's sin. He really can do without the people in the scripture that make him uncomfortable. Problem is, by doing so, he's avoiding one of the major themes of scriptures, the effect of sin. There's just at least, there's a couple of consequences to the nominal Christian's view of God. The first is that he cannot make sense of reality. Now think about this. If God is just love, how can hurtful, traumatic, even unloving things happen to loving people like himself? How many times have you heard somebody say that they gave up on God because he didn't answer their prayers? Uh, to them, God eventually becomes an untrustworthy genie. And you guys know, if you've studied the Bible, it's not a collection of Hallmark cards with warm and comfortable thoughts only. It includes graphic descriptions of the effects of sin. Ever since the original sin in the garden, we see countless figures who suffer from sin. None are whitewashed. Uh, our Old Testament hero David, a man after God's own heart, falls into and suffers the consequence of the gross sins of adultery and murder. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, members of the early church, Ananias and his wife Sapphira, are stricken dead by the Holy Spirit when they try to subtly deceive the others in the church. Now, the reason the Bible gives us these stories is not only about the effects of sin, but to teach us that even as members in good standing, we are by nature vile and wretched sinners. Psalmist tells us, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin did my mother conceive me. And Paul admits that I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So these things are not an attractive concept to the nominal Christian. In fact, he hates such teaching. Even more repugnant is the, is, uh, the, the, the whole thought that good things can happen to good, or excuse me, bad things can happen to good people, not because of sin, but because God has a purpose. Do you know anybody like that? Okay, remember what Mike's been teaching about Job? Think about the disciples, those called to carry his gospel to all the nations, all being put to death cruelly or imprisoned until their death. The other consequence for the nominal Christian is that he'll take God's love and he'll take it for granted. It is promised. It is his. And in today's vernacular, vernacular it becomes a right, an entitlement. Now, if he does not comprehend and fully appreciate God's holiness, righteousness, and perfect justice, and therefore his own fallen and sinful nature, how could he possibly fully comprehend and appreciate how undeserving he is of God's forgiveness and how just how great God is for all of us? Now, we've got to ask, why does he stick around? Why is he in church, you know? Well, he avoids the advice and the balance of the whole counsel of God. Rather, he seeks comfort and all the benefits of the Christian life and community 
which are good things for all of us. But my fear is that in today's culture of competition among churches, that may be all he gets in some churches. You see, certain churches avoid that which turns away the nominal Christian. In the process, they become unwitting co-laborers with those building on sand. That's a tragedy for the church today. So today we want to examine, spend the balance of our time looking at the characteristics of the genuine believer. First, Jesus clearly tells us in the previous passage to this one that it is the one who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. And then in our passage today, he tells us everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house upon a rock. The first thing we need to point out is that Jesus is not saying here that one can listen or read the Sermon on the Mount, practice what it says, and make himself a Christian. This is not salvation by works. That would be impossible. Uh, if you've been around for the last four years, you may, well, you probably don't remember, but when we started this, this, this uh, series, uh, we talked about how you have to take the whole Sermon on the Mount as a whole. And it starts with the Beatitudes, which starts with, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Now, not a one of us can make ourselves poor in spirit. And that chapter 5 ends with, be ye therefore holy, be ye therefore perfect, because your heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. Now, this is not justification by works. That would contradict the whole message of the New Testament, that we are justified by, we are not justified by the works of the law, but only by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Nor is it sinful sinless perfection, because none of us would make it. We've all sinned, and if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So what does it mean? Well, James gives us an idea here in chapter 2 of his book, faith without works is dead. In other words, faith is always accompanied by action. One can intellectually assent to God and may say, Lord, Lord, but not do his will. Using the name of Jesus is meaningless unless we obey. And faith is demonstrated in the whole person, in our demeanor as well as what we say and do. This is summarized in John's first epistle when he writes, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. Then in chapter 2 of 1 John, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says, he abides in him, ought himself to walk as he walked, as Jesus walked. Now, some folks, including some theologians, have a problem reconciling what Jesus says about his followers and what Paul says, or what they think Paul is saying about believers being under grace, not under law. 
Therefore, some have come to the conclusion that the Sermon on the Mount doesn't apply to us today. It was just for those disciples back then that Jesus was talking to. Or some have come to the conclusion it's just about some future kingdom, not us. Yet, was John speaking under grace when he wrote that? He wrote about knowing Jesus. Then this knowing is faith and belief in the grace and forgiveness of Christ. And we know that we know him and that the love of God is perfected in us if we keep his commandments. But John goes on to the guy who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, and he bluntly calls him a liar. This appears to be exactly what Jesus is saying when he says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And Paul agrees that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a peculiar people for his own possessions who are zealous of good works. Okay. If you remember last fall, we had a great study on the Reformation. Okay. But you got to admit, at times it was a little confusing about all the things that, we, that they went through, the back and forth and all that. Uh, and if you think it's confusing for us, think about how it was for them, coming from where they were. Uh, but I've tried to distill it down here to this, and I haven't put this on the overhead, but I've got it on your sheet because I want you to take your sheet home. We've got to understand simply that salvation is earned only by the work of Christ on the cross to pay for our sins, and then by the grace of God, it is received by our belief in that fact that we know as faith. And that it is demonstrated by our whole being, including our character and our good works. Okay? Pay attention to those verbs. They're very, very important. Okay. Let's take a closer look at the characteristics of the genuine believer. Oh, I did put it up there. <laughs> okay. This is my last slide. Okay? You guys see that? You know what it is. All right? And instead of looking at that slide, I want you, for the balance of our time here, to look at the backside of your handout. Okay? And I know what you're thinking right now. Oh, this is the laundry list. Especially the guys are going, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. It's too complicated. All right. Uh, we're going to go through this quickly, so don't worry about taking notes. But I want you to think about these things as evidences or signs of a true believer. First of all, what's your attitude about the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, we've discussed this for several years now. What has been your instinctive response when you first heard it? Have you considered it too hard or impossible? Now, a couple of qualifiers here. I'm not asking you if you've been challenged. I have been challenged almost every single time. 
I can't imagine a true believer who wouldn't be challenged by this message for all time. There are many hard sayings that Jesus gives us. Secondly, I need to ask you to filter me out of your assessment here. In other words, you distinguish the messenger from the message. Uh, I hope it's not the case, but I can certainly understand if someone has been put off by my presentation or maybe even a wrong spirit that they may have perceived from me as an imperfect vessel in bringing this message to you. But with those qualifiers, can you accept the Sermon on the Mount do you, without resentment? Do you find yourself not needing to defend yourself against what Jesus says? If so, that would be a sign of true belief. But you're, if you're uncomfortable upon hearing his words, if it annoys you or irritates you, if you're, impulse, if you're uh, impatient or even repulsed by those words, you may need to dig deeper into your spiritual condition because you may be building on sand. Secondly, do his words stick with you? Can you apply them to some extent in your life? James tells us that whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. That's the kind of person that a true believer is. But if you find on the way out of this or any other service, you engage in a nice, pleasant conversation, ex exchange you know, pleasantries, and then somebody says, what do you think of the message? and you have a hard time remembering anything about the message, uh, you may want to check your foundation. Because if you can't remember it that long, you're not really likely to apply anything that you may have come into your ears. Next, do you readily embrace the whole counsel of God or just the parts that you like? Is your Bible study and knowledge limited to the golden rule God is love, the Lord's Prayer, the 23rd Psalm, or love your enemies. All good. But if that's it, you may have a problem. Do you take the, the Sermon on the Mount as a whole? Do you accept the hard sayings of that and other passages to convict and challenge you without resentment? A true believer is a wise person who desires the Word of God to examine and expose any impurities in his or her life. And why should anybody be so vulnerable? It's because the true believer knows that our God treats us like sons and daughters. And that believer does not grow weary when reproved by him. He knows that the Lord disciplines the one he loves for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's Hebrews 12. Now this vulnerability requires humility. When God's word or a true friend confronts a true believer about a blind spot or an offense, that true believer will listen and consider what's being said or what he's reading. And he will admit when he's wrong, when he's done something 
against God's word or to offend somebody else. A true believer may even have to say, you don't know the half of it. You don't know that what you've confronted him about is not nearly the things that I'm guilty of. In other words, he doesn't make himself, but he gradually becomes more and more poor in spirit. He mourns for his sin. He is meek. He conforms to the Beatitudes more and more as he matures in his walk and his understanding of the word. He hungers and thirsts for that righteousness, so much so that he's not content to stay where he is. He desires to grow more like Jesus every day. He doesn't exhibit sinless perfection, but humble and loving obedience. He's merciful. He seeks purity. He tries to make peace between God and man. At the same time, he doesn't whimper and complain about ridicule and persecution. Instead, he takes it like a man of God, even rejoicing in it because he knows that God has a higher purpose. He conducts himself as an ambassador for Christ, whether as salt to help preserve the culture or to reflect the light of Christ until he comes. The words God's law for the true believer does not immediately bring to mind the word legalism. Rather, he willingly accepts Jesus' spiritual application of the law. He doesn't just refrain from sins like adultery and murder, but he knows that to lust after a woman or to be angry with his brother is the heart equivalent of those sins. He fully understands that the letter kills, but the spirit of, law, of the law gives life. You know, it may seem out of context, but Jesus' view of marriage was so important that he put it in the Sermon on the Mount. And the true believer views and protects the, mar the marriage union as a sacred picture of Christ and his bride, the church. His word is his bond. His yes means yes. He can be trusted. He goes the second mile beyond the minimum expected in his service. He does the totally unexpected. When confronted with evil, he returns good. He also understands and applies what Jesus says about doing your deeds in secret. Therefore, he doesn't advertise or make a show about serving. Doesn't even let people know about his giving. He follows Jesus' instruction on prayer to his loving Father, hallowing his name. He does nothing to draw attention to his other acts of piety. His focus is on treasures in heaven, not on earth. So he's got to understand that his priority, his focus has got to, got to be on his Lord, his Father, not on the stuff of this world. He's not anxious about his survival because he trusts that God will provide his daily bread. He doesn't judge harshly or hypocritically. Instead, he always looks to himself first before addressing a problem with somebody else in love. And he knows 
that he often fails at many of these things. But Jesus has told him, if he will ask, if he will seek and knock, that these things will be given him by his loving Father. And finally, he remembers the capstone of everything that Jesus said, that all he has to do is very simple, is treat others the way that he wants to be treated. I hope you've noticed that this was a quick summary of the whole Sermon on the Mount. And this is what it means to hear the sayings of Jesus and do them. To be a wise man building upon a rock. This man wants more than just forgiveness to escape hell, which is what Christy went forward for her first time in a Baptist church. At least she heard it. In the Methodist church, I didn't even know what hell was. He generally desires to know and be more like Jesus. He hungers and thirsts after the righteousness of Jesus. He's one who sees that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. He knows that he will never attain this righteousness to perfection in his own efforts, but his efforts are always to that end through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how you can know that you're building on the rock. You are ready for the winds and the crashing waters of life. Now, here's what I want you to do. That's, uh, I don't know, 30 or 40 messages crammed into one. Too much to absorb at once. So, I know what happens with these study sheets. All I do, all I, want, all I ask today is that you not do the normal thing and put it in the trash receptacle, although we appreciate your cleanliness. <laughs> or, if you're one of these, you not fold it neatly and place it in the cover of your Bible to be cleaned out within the next year. I ask that you please take that sheet home. Look at it. Pray about it. Meditate on it. Don't become discouraged if you're not meeting everything. None of us are. But ask yourself the question, is this the direction in which I'm going? Is this my heart's desire? And if you can come to that conclusion that you're on a solid rock, then you can help others see the clear line that Jesus lovingly draws in order to have that rock-solid assurance. The man who cannot pass this test is building on sand, and his house will fall from the inevitable trials and difficulties of life. If you think that might be you, the best possible thing that you can do is humbly prostrate yourself before the mighty hand of God. Confess and simply give yourself over totally to his love and his mercy and his forgiveness. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And if you're in that category where you're not sure, it's perfectly appropriate just to sit there. You don't have to participate. If you're not a believer, you shouldn't. If you're not sure. But just sit there. This would be a great time to have that conversation with God. Oh, Heavenly Father.
you have given us your word. You have given us a message that goes to our hearts. Lord God, help us not to be hearers only, but doers of the work. Help us to understand that we don't earn a thing. You have done it all for us. But we receive it through faith and we demonstrate it by everything in our lives, including our works. Lord God, I pray that you would touch everyone here and help them to go through the, the own self-evaluation and be sure they're on solid rock and if not, simply come to you in humble submission and recognition of their need for you. Father, we give you all the praise now that you be with us as we worship you and as we take communion together. In Jesus' name, amen.